0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: Hey, it's Jordan.
0: It is Saturday,
1: and that means it's time for us to take a little look into the pockets and bank accounts of someone else and use that to try to understand how our economy works, why it's so expensive these days, and what we can all do to find ways to afford the things that we thought we always would. Welcome once again to In This Economy, our newest show debuting here every Saturday, or of course, if you want them as soon as they're ready, in its own feed, released every Thursday morning. Enjoy.
2: It's really shocking the amount that rental prices have increased in the last couple of months and years, to the point that what I pay now is a fraction of what the prices are in my area, and it's hard to fathom how I could possibly leave. This is Rachel.
1: She's in her 30s and works as a PhD candidate and course instructor at the University of Toronto. Rachel reached out to us after she opened her mailbox one day.
2: I received a sort of circular distributed mailer thing from my MP that was specifically a talking about and addressing the housing crisis. And at the same time, nowhere on the pamphlet did it mention any protections for renters or anything around that. So I just found it a bit disappointing and shocking that in a housing crisis, we're barely talking about rent.
1: This is especially concerning to Rachel. She's not saving up for a mortgage anytime soon, so renting is her only path.
2: There's this disappointing social narrative that moving out of being a renter is the goal for everyone and there's a lot of people for whom that's just a never going to be an option and b not even what they're looking for and myself for example I am in academia which means that like where I live can be really variable and so I will be having to find new places to rent or new places to live and so it's not as though the current rent controls that exist in Ontario will actually benefit me because I will be changing residences from time to time.
1: And while Rachel's current apartment is relatively affordable, it's just not where she sees herself long-term.
2: I currently pay, I think, honestly around half of what is the average rent price in Toronto right now and for a one-bedroom. And if I try to move, my rent will double, if not more. Um, there's a new building built in my area. And looking at the rents there, they are 4200 for a two-bedroom in my area. And I just was like, that's just like
1: wild to me. Like most provinces and territories, Ontario doesn't have policies that keep rent from skyrocketing in between tenants.
2: The way that the rent control is structured here means that I I really cannot leave. Like I won't be able to find somewhere else that I can afford. And, you know, they can't obviously increase my rent more than the legal amount, but I do know that people have challenges with landlords, making things difficult for them, or, you know, I live in a unit in a house, and so things like the unit being sold, or, you know, if I talk about too many of the issues that need changing, they could, I get worried that they could say we need to renovate the unit entirely, and then that could be pushed up. So here, is
1: what Rachel wants to know.
2: What policy options are available to keep rental prices in an area within a reasonable range so that I could move if I needed to or chose to? I'd also like to know why politicians don't seem to care about renters being renters in the long term.
1: Because of this... Scouring places like Kijiji and Padmapper or waiting for a friend to move out of their affordable rental is what a lot of Canadians in Rachel's situation have resorted to. And I will just say, since it's becoming a bit of a muddy term, when I refer to housing as affordable, I am talking about situations where less than 30% of the pre-tax household income is spent on shelter costs. That's the actual definition today, as some of you are very painfully aware, many Canadian homes don't meet that affordability standard. And that is despite a spike in people renting instead of owning across the country. In 2022, Statistics Canada reported that over the past 11 years, the number of households who rent has grown twice as fast as the number who own. On top of that, the number of roommate households in Canada increased by more than 50% in that same period. So, given the spike in renting and rental costs, where is the spike in rental policy and protections? And while we wait for politicians to act, is there anything tenants like Rachel can do to slow the affordability crisis down? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and you're listening to In This Economy. It's a show that tries to help you understand the systems behind your money problems. From grocery bills and credit card debt, to cars, to babies, and yeah, paying the rent. In every episode, I start by talking to a person like Rachel, who is facing a financial challenge. And then I speak to an expert who understands how to deal with it. Somebody who can explain not just the factors behind the problem, but who can offer, if not perfect solutions, then things to work towards. Options that might help, even in this economy. Many Canadians who are currently renting
3: their homes plan to do so indefinitely. So according to some studies that I have done, about 70% of all tenant households do not earn enough to aspire home ownership anytime soon, and they would also never qualify for any housing subsidies. So they're just out there renting in the private sector and uh, fainting for themselves.
1: Ricardo Tranjan is a political economist and a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's also the author of a fascinating book called The Tenant Class.
3: Overall, one-third of households in Canada are renter households. That number has remained quite stable over the past 30 to 50 years. There is a higher concentration of tenant households in large urban centers. So when you're talking about Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver, you usually get closer to a 50-50 split. And that 30% applies more to the nation as a whole. I wonder
1: why renting's not becoming more popular overall, especially since we've seen the ability to purchase homes drop so rapidly.
3: Well, that um, trend is somewhat recent, so it might be that over the next couple of years we see a more significant change in the trend. It is possible that over the next couple of years, the share of total households that are renter households increase overall in Canada. We we tend to focus a lot on home ownership. That mm-hmm. is what the middle class aspire because that is the. Type of tenure that is more directly associated with uh, housing security. So people feel more secure right. if they own. They feel like they can, you know, make plans and and be part of their community and sign up their kids to particular school, and they will be able to stay there in that place for a long time if they own, as opposed to renting, where things might happen. They might get kicked out. They might be asked to move. And so there is a huge, huge emphasis among. Canadian middle class families to try and access home ownership, which is not the way it is in every country, but that's how how we are over here.
1: As the prices of home ownership have gone through the roof, how have rental prices in general? And maybe let's focus on the uh, large Canadian cities. That's not only where our listener is uh, calling from, but uh whereas you mentioned earlier, the majority of renters are.
3: Yes, rents are also skyrocketing. In the large urban centers that we always talk about, namely Vancouver and Toronto, also other large cities that used to be considered more affordable, like Montreal and Ottawa um, and Halifax. In those cities, rents are also going up by quite a lot recently. And when you look at the data, even smaller places in Quebec, for example, that used to be quite affordable, that affordability is trending downwards in the past couple of years. And so I give you some numbers and to provide some examples as well into about the difference between um, rents in occupied units and rents in vacant units. And that's the thing that sometimes creates a bit confusion. So if you look at Vancouver right now, the average rent for a two-bedroom unit is around $1,800, right? Mm. But that's for tenants who have been in the same unit for some time. If you're looking for a new unit the prices they're going for is more like 2300 right? And that's the sort of difference that we always see. And that's why sometimes people don't understand or they think they're in a really cheap unit. Because in provinces where there are rent controls, your rents go up by only a certain amount every year. That's control, that's um It usually keeps with inflation, but usually there's no rent controls for vacant unions. So when you leave that union and you try to find something else, you're like, oh my God, that's a lot more than I'm paying. Mm. And it's kind of because of that. So in Toronto right now, for the average for an occupied two-bedroom is 1600 But if you try to look for another one, it's 2100 right? And these are averages, of course, you can find places that are way, way more expensive. It's depending where you look. And in large cities, there's various um, neighborhoods and a lot of discrepancy between right. neighborhoods close to downtown and farther away.
1: You mentioned we have a huge focus on home ownership. I want to know... Where that comes from and why, when we consistently hear all levels of government talk about a housing crisis uh, in this country, the answers that we hear most of them propose all seem to be addressed to helping more Canadians afford
3: to buy a home.
1: Where is essentially, where's the love for people who are trying to rent?
3: That's accurate. A lot of our policies are geared towards Providing folks for more access to home ownership, especially when elections come, those election platforms are usually filled with promises and and policies with that objective. Sometimes those policies are even a little bit counterproductive because a lot of them involve providing families with more credit, and that additional credit could actually help to increase their prices of housing because people are um, are able and willing to continually bet more and more on the price of those houses. But it is a combination of culture and policy and economics. So culturally, we associate home ownership with security and not only with security, we, we actually associate with success as well. It is the yeah. sort of the milestone of a successful middle class life. You know, you have to buy and own your own house. But also government policy has, since World War II, uh, put a lot of emphasis on giving folks more access to home ownership through various agencies and and financial schemas, and a lot of emphasis has been there. And when it comes to the rental market, by and large, the approach has been to just allow folks to fend for themselves and then to provide very low-income families with either a subsidy that helps them to pay rent or social housing unit where rents are geared to income or rents are lower but by and large that has been a very sort of residual policy in this in the sense that it's targeted and it's really targeted at very low incomes
0: my name is john cullen and i want to tell you a story
1: When we talk about what legislation is targeted towards helping renters, I think we almost all go to rent control or rent regulations. Maybe as we get into this, um, can you explain what those are and how they work? and, And maybe more importantly, as you sort of mentioned with your earlier example of Vancouver, why they don't
3: always work? Yes, rent controls are policies that are put in place to limit how much rents can go up year over year. The most common rent controls that we have in Canada right now, uh, in provinces like British Columbia and Manitoba and Ontario and Quebec and Prince Edward Island are rent controls on occupied units. Meaning, once you come in, you rent a unit, there's a certain amount that you agree to pay and that amount can only go up by so much at the end of the year. That so much is a guideline that the government announces usually around October and is usually attached to the rate of inflation for that year. So that's rent controls on occupied units. We used to have in some provinces to have rent controls on vacant units, which means that once you leave your unit, the next tenant would only be asked to pay that same controlled rent increase that you would have paid had you stayed, right? So, you know, the the, the rent control is applied to the unit, not to the tenant. But then, you know, in the past years, places like, in the past decades, actually, places like Ontario and, and British Columbia, we adopt vacancy decontrol, which means that between tenancies, landlords can increase rents by however much they want. And on average, it's by a lot. In Ontario right now, the average rent increase for turnover units is around twenty-seven percent. So rent goes up by almost up by almost thirty percent between tenancies. And there are other ways you can, you know, fine tune and target rent controls, but that's kind of like the gist of it, of what we have in Canada today.
1: Maybe I'm being simplistic, but the way you've just described those two different forms of rent control and the lack of vacancy controls would seem to imply that landlords have a huge interest in getting tenants out of their units and getting new ones in.
3: Absolutely. And that's one of the two big problems with vacancy controls. First, as you mentioned, it provides a huge incentive for evictions, or at least for not, you know, going out of their way to to making the house a good place for, for a particular family because, you know, should they ever be displaced and, and decide to leave? Well, you get to increase the rent by, you know, 30%. So that is a huge problem. The other problem is that the nature of the rental market is such that there's a high turnover, meaning every year in cities like Toronto, at least 15% of the units change hands. Tenants go, tenants come, that's the nature of renting, right? And so if if in that big chunk of the total stock rents are going up by that much year after year, you see how over you know a period of five years, a large part of your total rent stock was subject to this really high rent increases. So you know that puts a huge upward pressure on rents. This
1: brings us to one aspect of the specific question our listener asked us, which is they're in a situation where they do have rent control, but uh, their current place doesn't have the amenities or maybe the location that they need. So they would love to be able to move to a different unit. However, if they do that, uh, they're going to lose their rent control and be stuck paying market rates. And I think about that in Rachel's case, but also just like if you are... A, a family who rents and you want to have another child, or you want to start a family, for instance, you can't just easily create more space by paying the same rate that you are now.
3: Absolutely. And back to our point about, you know, the focus on homeownership and and how we, we love it and and so on. There are actually many benefits to renting. And one of the underrated benefits of renting is mobility. Mm-hmm. Right. It's Renting should have a low, lower transactional cost than owning. So if you own a home, if you try to sell it and buy another one, usually that is a somewhat complicated process. You pay quite a bit of money for doing that and so on. The transactional cost for renting should be much lower so that if you get a job in the other side of the city, you don't think about you don't think about it twice. You just go take that job and then move closer to it. If the childcare spot that you, you found happens to be also kind of far away, you kind of maybe can move closer to it sometimes. And the sandwich generation experiences that a lot. Sometimes it, it happens that now you need to take more care of your parents. So it would be a lot helpful if they move closer to you or you move closer to them. And, you know, there's a number of sort of family, personal and economic reasons that would kind of push people to move back and forward. And if there was not that huge premium that exists right now because of the absence of, of vacancy controls in relocating from one place to the other, that mobility would be really helpful to individual tenants, but it would also be uh, arguably have a good impact on the economy more broadly as you know, people can get the jobs they're best qualified for, people can spend less time commuting, more time working and doing other activities and so on and so forth.
1: Is there anywhere in Canada that has that kind of control?
3: Yes, Manitoba and Prince Edward Island still have controls on vacant unions. And they're not bulletproof, but they're they're still there. And the interesting thing is most range controls that we have right now in Canada date back from the mid-1970s. And guess what we had in the mid-1970s? really high inflation. Hmm. And then the federal government at the time said, well, how do you control inflation? Well, what is one of the biggest expenditures people have? Housing. So, okay, so let's control that because if we, you know, hold the cost of housing will help us to slow down inflation. So the federal government negotiated with the provinces because it's a provincial matter. And then provinces across the country implemented the rent controls. Some of them removed the rent controls as soon as they could, kind of early 1980s. Some capped them, some slowly dismantled them like Ontario is doing right now. But it's interesting because we also, in our current context of high inflation... We're not doing that. We're not uh, trying to bring in rents directly. And some research now is showing that the high interest rate policies that the Bank of Canada is implementing is actually having a negative impact on inflation through mortgages and rents. So why wouldn't we attempt the same thing that we did last time?
1: We faced high inflation and higher rents. We see a ton from governments about uh, homeowners and prospective homebuyers buyers. Uh, and we don't hear a lot when it comes to supporting renters. Why wouldn't we simply just do what we know has worked before?
3: I think the political consensus has shifted quite a bit to what many would refer the right. Or more specifically, in the 1970s, there were more politicians, there were more governments willing to use government's regulatory powers to control and, and, and have a direct impact. Impact on social and economic policy. You know, since the 1980s and and up to this day, governments have been very shy at using regulation to ring in the market, to tell businesses what to do and what not to do. The free market ideology has become quite stronger. And I think that, to a large extent, explains governments' reluctance to to act on a number of fronts. Um, During the pandemic, we had a little bit of a hiatus on that approach because the governments did kick in and did what had to do. And then some people thought that would be a different, you know, new moment, uh, new epoch in terms of government interventions. But no, you know, governments continue to be quite shy on that front. But with rent controls specifically, rent controls have a really bad reputation and and for two reasons. And that's quite unfortunate because we need a serious conversation about rent controls in Canada. But quickly, The two reasons are, first, we had what we call the first generation of rent controls. Right after, and during and after the, the Second World War, we had this Blunt rent freezes for undetermined amount of times. And it was just, you know, the cost of living was too high, there was not enough housing, people were paying too much in rent, and governments just froze rents. And not only in Canada, in other countries too. And they froze without telling folks how long you would be frozen for. Uh, they had a negative impact on the market. They prevented investment, they prevented a uh, landlords from investing in the state of good repairs of the buildings. So some research shows that those rent controls, those first-generation rent controls, they thwart construction and they had a negative impact on repairs. Problem is, the real estate industry to this day use those studies to argue against rent controls hmm. in a self-serving sort of way. Because no industry likes to have price controls that prevent them from raising prices for uh, increasing their margins of profit. So whenever we talk about rent controls, they say, "Oh, it's bad. We will stop construction." You know, and if you ever push back and ask for any sort of proof of that, they will come out with some 1955 study and throw it at you. And also because the new classic economics that today kind of. Supports a lot of the public policy choices that we make. In those, you know, economic theories, price controls are generally bad hmm. uh, because the the notion is that the market is self-correct, just wait, and, and price controls are bad. And it doesn't matter what kind of price control. It can be on bananas, shoes, or rent. Right. They're bad. So for those reasons, and, and I think those are, like, wrong reasons, we don't have a serious conversation in this country about what kind of, like, well-designed, thoughtful, carefully implemented rent control we could put in place at this time to help with addressing skyrocketing rents. Since it doesn't look like uh, that thoughtful, serious
1: conversation will happen and lead to new policy, at least not at the moment, what should renters do? What options do they have? What would you recommend to somebody either uh, like Rachel, who is stuck in an apartment that doesn't work for them, but can't move because they'll lose their rent control or somebody who's looking at, you know, new leases and is floored by the price?
3: Yes, my book talks about what renters have always done and what they are presently doing in these types of situations, which is to organize and to fight back politically. So Canada actually has a really rich history of tenant organizing. Since before the confederation, tenants have formed tenant unions, tenant associations, tenant movements, and they have come together and they have, you know, taken the political fight that is required to change some of those things. So we see that throughout, you know, throughout Canadian history, though we, we don't often hear about it. And then nowadays too, we have tenant unions and associations across the country. Some of them are quite militant. Some of them are quite well-established, well-structured. Right now in Toronto, we have a number of buildings, five or six, and a total of more than 600 tenants on a rent strike and that is the sort of the outcome of that organizing and that work where tenants will take matters on their own hands and push back against the landlords that are you know either pushing rents by too much and increasing rents by too much or not completing uh, renovations or you know trying to evict folks and so on and so forth how does a rent strike work and why is it effective Uh, Rent strike is in a number of ways very similar to uh, a labor strike. Um, Workers go on a strike as a strategy to stop the revenue flows, uh, to stop production, and that catches the attention of bosses. And then the bosses come to the table and then are more willing to negotiate better conditions. Tenants do the same. They withhold rent. So they cut the the revenue flows to the landlords in attempt to call their attention. So they also will sit at the table and negotiate with tenants. The biggest difference is that with labor in unionized working places, workers have the right to collective bargaining. So there's a very clearly regulated process of Mm -hmm. how the negotiations happen, which the rights and obligations of both sides. And, And in most cases, we get to a resolution of the problem before you go on a strike. It really becomes the last resort. With the rental market, tenants have the right to form unions and associations, but they do not have the right to collective bargaining, which means that the landlord gets to ignore them. And that's what's happening. In all of the buildings that are on rent strike right now, tenants reach out to the landlords a number of times and said, please come to the table. Let's negotiate this. In one of the strikes in New York Southwest, even Mayor levert Shao got involved and asked the landlord to come to the table. She would be there. She would help to negotiate a better deal for everyone. But they refused to come because they were not obliged to. Mm -hmm. So those are the similarities, but there's also this very important difference. The last thing I'll ask you now then is for practical advice
1: on how to I'm not necessarily saying how to go on and start a rent strike, but I find like it can be very difficult in a big building. People don't know their neighbors. Uh, You know, renting is, again, as you mentioned, kind of seen as as transient. So maybe people don't get to know each other the way they would if they were, you know, neighbors on the street who all assumed they would be here for decades. How can tenants go about organizing and maybe perhaps eventually uh, getting landlords to the table with a strike?
3: My practical advice here is to reach out to an existing tenant union, even if it's not in your neighborhood, even if it's not in your city or your province. As part of my research, I spent a lot of time with, with tenant organizers in the existing unions, and I know that they always make time for talking to folks in other parts of the city or the country who are trying to organize, who are trying to form their own unions, and they're always very willing to share their experiences. Actually, the York Southwestern Union is presently doing a series of weekly talks where they invite anyone to connect from any part of the country and to hear about their experience. And not all about only about the you know the particular strike that they're on right now and how they came about and how they're making that happen, but also about all the seven, eight years of organizing of smaller collective actions that sort of led them to this point where they can pull such a thing off. Um, So my advice is Go online, look for a tenant unit anywhere. reach out to them, and I'm sure that you will find that solidarity among tenants are is quite strong at this at this time organizing you know when we look at the policies that came about throughout Canadian history, the policies and the protections that were put in place, a lot of them were the, the indirect result of pressure from below. Never mind, you know, the individual victories on the ground that make a big difference for, for tenant and tenant families.
1: Ricardo, thank you so much for this. Um, it's tough that the only advice that we can really give to renters right now is to organize and fight back, but it's never a bad thing. Thanks again. Thank you. You can find Ricardo's book, The Tenant Class, wherever books are sold, and if you're wonky about this stuff, you can check out his research by heading to the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives at policyalternatives.ca. And listen, I can't magically find you an affordable apartment, but if you're not yet ready to make the move to Manitoba or PEI, here are a few things you can do, maybe, to help with the cost. First, talk to your friends about renting. Tell each other how much you pay, how long your lease is for, and crucially, if any of them might be giving up that lease to move into a different apartment. And if your friends have good landlords, well, talk to them about that because those good landlords, rare as they might be, probably rent other apartments. And those apartments might be available. So really, just talk. Talk to people who rant about rent. Second, like Ricardo said, policy change is inspired by pressure from below. Do you know why homeowners get all the support and policies that they want? Because they complain loudly and often to their MPs, to their MPPs, to their city councillors, to their neighbours, to anybody who will listen and potentially help them. There's a reason we have the term NIMBYs, and there is a reason NIMBYism has been so effective. These people do not hesitate to get in touch with their representatives. And guess what? You can be just as annoying advocating for renters' rights, so look into any legislation currently on the table, find out whether or not your councillor, your MP, your MPP supports it, and if not, get them on your side. Call their office, ask for a meeting, write a strongly worded email. Whatever you do, they need to know there are people like you out there and that people like you won't hesitate to organize and vote. And finally, speaking of organizing, you heard it from Ricardo and you will hear it from a lot of people who want to affect change when you feel like there's nothing left to help you. Organize. Whether it's to start a tenants' union or an association or just... To have somebody to talk to about problems around your building or call for a cup of sugar, it never hurts to know your neighbours. And once you do know your neighbours, you might find you have some power in those numbers. If you're looking to organise and get something started, you should shoot a message to other local groups who have similar interests. That could be rental rights advocate groups, it could just be the tenants' association at the building down the street. As Ricardo said, There are a ton of people already in this fight who are eager to help you join it. I know it sounds intimidating. I know it might even sound corny to say that your voice can change the world. But if you don't speak up for yourself, nobody's lining up to speak for you. Thanks again to Ricardo for sharing his research and his organizing tips for those struggling with rising rents. And of course, thanks to Rachel for opening up and sharing her situation and her money problems with us. If you would like to do the same thing, get some advice from an expert, even if it's tough to talk about, we want to hear from you. I hope you know by listening to this episode, we'll find somebody who gets it to talk with. You can email us absolutely anytime. That address is hello at itepod.ca. You can also call us and leave a voicemail and talk it out. Remember, if you're going to do that, that somewhere in the voicemail. You need to leave your name and number so we know how to get in touch with you. That phone number is 416-935-5935. Again, it's 416-935-5935. We don't actually need your real name, but we do need your real situation and your real numbers. If you want to find us on social media for a little bonus content, we are on both Instagram and TikTok at InThisEconomyPod. This is my first time on TikTok. Be gentle. If you want more of this show, or if you'd like to share this show with somebody you think could use it, we would be extremely appreciative of that. And if you listen to podcasts at all, you know how to do it. It's by liking, by rating, by leaving a review, by subscribing, by following, by doing whatever your favorite podcast app Let's you do to get the word out. I am your host and your executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This episode was written and produced by Ali Graham. The sound design was done by Robin Edgar. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. And Diana Kay is our manager of business development together. That's the Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks once again for listening. We'll talk to you next week on In This Economy.